my editor was like, you have to finish the book. Mm. It sounds to me like it's something you want to say that you haven't said. So what is that? And it was telling my story. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Danielle Smith, author of Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop. From editor at Billboard to editor-in-chief of Vibe magazine, twice, you know Danielle not only from her body of written work, but her spot-on commentary and critique of music and pop culture. She's in all the documentaries, y'all. It's a career path she carved out of clay that demanded dedication and sacrifice. I just said, I have to do something that makes me happy for living. And that's what was hard, especially when you're young, you don't have any money. I have to co-pitch, I have to take assignments even when I don't like the topic. I have to file on time. I have to have that reputation for my stories having a great beginning, a great middle, and a great end. Good wasn't good enough for me. Much like the Black women artist she profiles in her book, Danielle prides herself on the quality of work she's given to the culture. The reason she believes the lineage of Black women pop stars begins with Phyllis Wheatley Peters. Plus, how she gained the confidence to put herself in the story. And... The most surprising thing she learned researching and interviewing these musical sheroes that confirmed her suspicions about what it means to be a Black woman with talent who knows her worth. Danielle holds court next, when Black and Published continues. All right, so let's get started. When did you know that you were a writer? I would say from the youngest of ages, like... uh... I remember being given a book at maybe even three or four. I read early. So I remember saying to myself, well, what if I want to change that part? Like in the book, it was about a dog. <laughs> it's about a dog. It was about a dog named Daddles, as a matter of fact, D-A-D-D-L-E-S. And I wanted to know, like, I was curious just how it came to be like so I had questions even as like the babiest of babies. And then I think by the time I got to second or third grade and I had Mrs. Gibbs and Mrs. Gibbs was so great. She used to make us write a story and then turn it into a book to break it out over like 10 pages. And each page would have like a sentence or two and you had to draw a picture above it representing the sentences. And then you got to get the color construction paper. (laughs) and make a little title like cover for it and then you could take it up to her desk and she would staple it together that to me was the first time I was editing a magazine so you know (laughs) I feel like I've been knowing I was some type of writer or editor just I don't remember time really when I wasn't and you talk about in the book that you know you were hungry for the music magazines, you would always ask for them in the school library. Mm-hmm. When did that thought occur to you that, you know, I need more of this in my voice? My mother and my mother's sister and my mother's friends. I was fascinated with the music that they enjoy. And I talk about this a lot in Shine Bright. That's how a lot of the women were actually chosen outside of the ones that are in my generation. And I was disgruntled by the fact that I couldn't find a lot of writing about, say, Natalie Cole, 
in her time, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I was disgruntled about the fact that there even back then there wasn't enough about any black artist, period, let alone black women artists. It's not like it is today where you could just call up something on the laptop. If it wasn't in the bookstore at the library, you know, it didn't exist and it didn't exist for us. So I started reading about the white rock stars because it was loads of stuff about them. If you wanted to know about Elvis, his whole library is devoted to his work. My mother was an Elvis fan. My mother was a Buddy Holly fan. Everybody of that era, I think, of my mother's era was in some way, shape, or form a Beatles fan. So I was began to be fascinated by them also. And they had the Rolling Stone magazines in my high school library. They had Life magazine, Time magazine. All these are the great magazines of the last century. And, and I would see how they just would really be able to go on the road with a band or an artist. And I was like, so this could be a job. (laughs) (laughs) And I could just write down all the details of everything that I see and then convey that to the people who can't be here. And then I knew, I knew that I wanted to be doing something like that. I remember all the documentaries of the screaming Beatles fans. And I loved those girls. I thought they were so powerful. They were like, we're not going to be ladylike and dainty about our affection for our favorite group. We're going to try to stop the car. (laughs) (laughs) Stop traffic. (laughs) Yes, man. They were just chasing them down in their limos and stuff. So I wanted that type of energy. I wanted to be able to convey that type of energy. And at a certain point, I had to get focused. So then what was the journey and the focus of making that your job and now really your life's work? It it wasn't a straight line. I don't know. I don't think it's a straight line even now. You know, I, I took the creative writing courses and the photography courses and things like that at my high school. And then I got to college and I was taking really good classes, but then I had to drop out for money reasons. I ended up, um, my stepfather convinced me to go after an internship at a small local, like alternative news weekly But then I couldn't afford to keep working there really as much as I wanted to because back then internships didn't pay. Sometimes they still don't. And I was living on my own. So I had to get other jobs. I had two jobs and the internship. And at a certain point, something had to give. But I was committed to trying to freelance. And I said to myself, I'm just going to do it as much as I can. Like I was into quantity and quality at that time. Right now I'm into quality. (laughs) <laughs> but back then, back then I was into quality and quantity. And when you're serving two masters, sometimes one loses. But when you're young, you can do it all. And so I did. And I got noticed. And I started getting recommended for jobs. And then I was on my way. San Francisco Weekly, Billboard. Um, started writing for Rolling Stone. All these kind of names that mattered and still matter to some degree so much. And then when Quincy Jones launched Vibe, I was like, oh, he made that up for me. He's in he's in my dreams, figuring out what I think would be a perfect magazine. So I got myself over there as quick as I could. You open Shine Bright talking about one of your first freelance gigs and you end that that kind of prologue talking about like, you know, the offer was 10 cents a word to do. <laughs> yeah. But the bad part is they're still trying to pay that, though. But we won't do it. Yeah, it's true, though. It's freelance. True. It's yes, it's ugly. Yeah. And like, you know, that being kind of like your launching pad. And you also talk about cold pitching yourself. Was it hard? 
Because I get like, I cold pitching now is to me is still very, very difficult. And then you're doing it like before the internet. So what is I that? <laughs> it's hard. It's awful. Like, what was it's, that like in getting those breaks through just cold pitching? To be honest, when I look back on it, I don't know where I got the nerve. I literally don't know from where it came. I think it might have come from the fact that I just really, at a certain point, didn't have a choice. Mm. I'm a good employee wherever I work, and I've had all types of jobs. And one job that I was particularly good at was being a sales associate at Saks Fifth Avenue in San Francisco. They offered me a full-time job without a college degree. And I was like, I don't know if I want to be in retail. And one of the women working there said, it's a, it's a great living retail. And that I could end up being a buyer or something like that. And I had a conversation with myself and I was like, am I about to do this? Mm. Like, am I about to work full time at sex? Because I was living for that 30% discount. Or am I going to really try to do what my heart wants, which is to be a writer and be broke for a long time forward? (laughs) (laughs) And like all of the best writers, at least the Black and POC ones, I chose the broke route. Because I didn't come, I didn't come from that family that was like, I have a friend that works at the such and such a newspaper in St. Louis, and you know they're going to get you an interview, you know, on the you know sports desk or whatever. I didn't have any of those kind of connections. I didn't have the money to be in school, so I just had to get after it. it there was no Sade had that song. When am I going to make a living? And it really did inspire me. When am I going to make a living? Like when am I? going to make a living, doing something that I enjoy. And man, when I used to see my name in print, I didn't care if it was a tagline at the end. I don't care if it was a byline. I didn't care if it was a 200-word record review or 4,000-word cover story. You will see my name spelled correctly in the paper. I see that. It sounds corny, but that was money to me. Like It gave me the same rush of getting paid. I got over that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> But at the beginning, I just would hold it up like, oh, my God, like, this is Daniel Smith. It still sometimes will give me the chills. It is a kind of currency in itself when you can say I've written for here, here and here before the money comes. But you Mm -hmm. talk about having to make sacrifices for for the writing. But you also talk about in Shine Bright, all the artists who have had to make sacrifices sometimes unbeknownst to them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. for for the art. Why was it that those intersections were where you came at writing this story that is part memoir and part history of Black women in pop? The reason for me is because over the course of my career, I've interviewed all types of people of all races, different types of careers, you know, sports, music, film, politics, all those things. But the stories that I would get up for was when I was interviewing a Black woman. Because I always feel, as I still feel, that our stories don't get told in the detail that the stories of male artists get told and very much the way the stories of white male artists are told. That same attention to detail, that same rigorous research and reporting, um, the passion for the subject and the the genre of music that the artist is working in, I didn't see a lot of that in the coverage of Black women. And when I would interview them, this was always a topic, nine times out of 10, a topic 
And then so many times one of these women would say, but don't you feel that way in your position? Mm. Don't you feel that way about the differences in pay between a, a woman journalist and a male journalist? Don't you feel that way in the fact that you talk about cold pitching? It would never have occurred to me back then to say I, I'm cold pitching a story about Nirvana or Elton John. Because it was just like the unwritten rule that if you were Black, you wrote about Black things and the white people wrote about the white things. And honestly, a lot of that is still in place. I remember it is. Like, it's just, it's it, the, these these lines of segregation that were in place for so long, they're still there. They're just more shadowy. You know, they're just more customary. And it's just, it's just ugly. So these women would say, don't you feel that way? Or if we were talking about our relationships, if it was a, a woman who's straight and I'm straight, we're talking about relationships with men, and they would say, well, what is your relationship like with your husband? How different is it really than what I'm going through? And you couldn't always put that in the piece. Sometimes I tried to, you couldn't always put that in the piece, but it always stayed here in my head. And I was always like, at some point, I'm going to have to figure out a way to write about them. And then when I was writing Shine Bright and I was unable to just close the deal, I just, the book took me five years and my editor was finally like, you have to finish the book. Mm. It sounds to me like it's something you want to say that you haven't said. So what is that? And it was telling my story. And that's how it became a very personal history of Black women in pop and not just a history of Black women in pop. Do you think you shied away from telling your story because the journalist is always not supposed to become the subject? Yes, <laughs> but of course. I'm always like, so you want me to put the first person in here? You, you want the, the letter, you want the word I, the letter I, capital I? That's a big step for journalists. It takes the confidence in yourself. It takes the confidence of an editor or a media organization organization to have that faith in you. But while I do say, yes, it has to do with that journalistic custom, but it also has to do with confidence and feeling worthy enough, feeling that your story is worth being told. Mm. That is a huge hump. I wrote a novel before, two novels before Shine Bright. And in More Like Wrestling, which is my first novel, it's the story of two sisters growing up in Oakland during the crack era. And it was billed as spiritually autobiographical. First of all, it's a memoir told in fictional form, but I was too scared to do that. And I remember when I was writing it, I called my sister who, who's my heart. She just dropped some outfits off for me tonight because she knows I'm not together for what these Grammy events are these, <laughs> this week. Her name is Raquel. I said, Kel, are you going to be mad if I put our business in the street, so to speak? She said, you should have been wrote that. And I'm quoting. She said, you should have been wrote it. And I'm the older sister. So it was great to get that cosign, but really all of us have to find it in ourselves to say my story is worthy. This has stayed with me since I read the book. In page 12, I think in that first chapter, you say, at first I had real shit to be ashamed of. And then shame became a lifestyle. And I think I shuddered uh, when I read that line. And I go back to it now because when you talk about the importance of telling a story, 
you're also talking about worthiness and and having a publication journey where this book has seen two publishers has gone through many iterations. Do you also think there is a reluctance by industries, publishing and even the music industry to allow black women a place and a voice to tell their own story, be it in a book or on a record? Yes, absolutely. The stories of black women, the stories of women of color, and it's it's always like ironic to me that the initial thought of so many gatekeepers is not enough people are going to be interested in that. The story is not a universal story. It's not going to appeal to everyone. My response to that my whole career has been what? That just really depends on how you define in everyone. That's what it depends upon. And the other thing is people say, oh, no one's going to be interested in that. A Black woman's style, a Latin woman's story, an Asian girl's poetry. Not going to be interested in that. But yet then when they do it, so often they're hailed as geniuses. As geniuses. The Supremes are a story. Okay? How they sound. All that Detroit in them. All that Project Girl energy that they gave. Right? That's a story right there. And them being unafraid of getting up on the stage and sharing it. And we know that they battled the Beatles pound for pound for number one hits in the pre-civil rights era, America that was segregated, legally, legally separated. Do not sit at the front of the bus, ma'am. You are not allowed to sit at the front of the bus. These are real things that happen. This is the lifestyle that was being lived by so many Black people. You can't live in this neighborhood at all. We're going to bomb your house. But by all means, come see about me. That's a story. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They get gatekept. And then when they kick the door down, they're the best, the most beautiful, the most emulated, and factually the most stolen from, which was another big impetus for writing Shine Bright to tell that part of the story about just how much influence Black women have had on all of American music. And when you have a lot of influence on American music, you have influence on global music, Mm -hmm. period. End of story. Yeah, the amount of groups and artists that were stolen from that you talk about in this book, Mm -mm. and and not even only monetarily, because, you know, there's the actual stealing of, of, of the wealth that they could have had. But not only that, it was when you start talking about, I think it's in the chapter about Aretha Franklin and you have the Etta James quote and you mentioned on on your podcast too mm-hmm. that they're also stolen from mentally and emotionally and spiritually because there's always these hangers on you know mm-hmm. then where do you get the confidence I think is the question to tell the story anyway when you know there's going to be so much pushback it's different for every woman for me it was because there was I mean when I say there was no choice there's always a choice But I had to make it in my mind that there was no choice or else I was going to be unhappy. Mm. And I did think that I deserved to be happy. I remember some of my grandmother's friends. There was some that I did like and love and some that I would be like, oh, we got to go by Miss So-and-so house. I can't stand her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I remember my grandmother telling me one time, and my grandmother's a lot in Shine Bright. She always had those words of wisdom for me. And she would say, I would say, why is she so evil? Why is she so mean? 
And my grandmother said, because she's unhappy. And I said, unhappy about what? Like she got a house, she got a car. My grandmother would break down whatever the reasons were. And they nine times out of 10, they had to do with loneliness, desertion, feeling unappreciated, not being able to get the jobs that they wanted to get or go to the schools that they wanted to go to, being poor or just never having enough money as working class. And heartbreakingly, just having dreams that they were not able to make come true. So I decided, I think, just like early on that I didn't want to be like my grandmother's friends that were heartbroken like that. I didn't want to be that lady when I'm this age now, right, that my niece doesn't want to bring her friends by because her auntie always has something cutting to say. Mm. And so that's when I just said, I have to do something that makes me happy for living. And that's what was hard, especially when you're young, you don't have any money. It's like, I really don't have money either to get my nails done or to pay my phone bill or whatever it is. How long can I stay committed to this before I have to change? And what that would do for me, as I I said, I just went back to my mantra back then, which is it has to be right now for me, is just quality and quantity. I have to co-pitch. I have to take assignments even when I don't like the topic. I have to file on time. I have to have that reputation for my stories having a great beginning, a great middle, and a great end. Good wasn't good enough for me. I would read my work aloud to my friends so it sounded right, sounded like me talking. I had answered, tried to answer the questions that I thought were going to come back at me in an edit. Um, Did I paint the picture? Did I use all five senses in my writing so that the person reading it could see it, smell it, hear it, touch it? Because I always feel in service to the reader that's not where I am, either whether that's in my brain or at a concert or interviewing somebody. I want the person to feel, the reader, the user to feel like I was in Whitney Houston's living room with Danielle. When people say that to me, I just want to hug them. I'm like, did you? Did you? I'm so excited. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so into it because that is what my actual job is when I'm writing. That is what the actual, to me, that, no, that is my actual job. Bring bring the reader in the room. Yes. yes. When, when you miss catching the football, I was right there. I was like, ooh, I can see the look. <laughs> no. Oh, you really, look, you really do know the details. That's so lovely. I'm so happy that you read it. Yes. So since we're here, let's, can you read a little something from the book and then we can really get deeper into it. In Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop, Danielle Smith chronicles her intense love of music by fusing the personal with the historical. She gives readers insight into how some of the greatest pop records were created and the women who sang them, from the Dixie Cups to Aretha and Whitney, Diana Ross to Janet and Mariah, and this literary soundtrack of her life. Here's Danielle. I can read about the terrible true facts of Whitney Houston's death since we were just talking about her. Yeah, we can go there. So the setup for the story is, I tell Whitney Houston's story based around a moment in my life where I was having dinner with Gerald Levert of Levert and Eddie Levert of the OJs at the Regal Royal Hotel in New York City. And Bobby and Whitney had walked in and it was just... A mess, but I'll read. At the Regal Royal in 2000, 
on this night when folks is definitely out and laughter peels and the energy is taut. Whitney Houston strides into the lobby restaurant with her husband, Bobby Brown. Whitney is too effusive. The rollicking room levels down to a hum. It is Whitney, after all. She is not at her 90s pinnacle, but she still is Whitney. Wiry as a hanger, twisting and untwisting, she gives Don King a showy, rocking hug. Whitney and Bobby both look higher than they ought to, but Bobby seems more high. Like his is a manic high. Brown doesn't like the hug. We can see that from where we are, and we are four or five tables away from where they are. I'm in the gray goose gimlets of my 30s. Gerald is with his Hennessy. King's cousinly hold on Houston is long. Bobby says something, points. King's got Whitney in that hug like, are you okay? Holds her like we wish we could. King has known Sissy Houston, Dionne Warwick, and Whitney since forever. Quote, music is the ribbon that ties humanity together, King will proclaim on the occasion of Whitney's death. And God had given Whitney the voice of life. End quote. In the Riga, most of us are seeing Houston that high for the first time. A bunch of us had been wanting to believe it was not as bad as it seemed or as deep as we'd heard. We're frozen. How must we look in our good clothes, nursing sweet drinks with our mouths open? Knives no longer ping and Eddie LeVert no longer eats his food. Eddie sees the flare before the fire, still pointing. Bobby talks at King, pointing, stabbing air, getting close. I can't hear exactly what's being said. Gerald senses my impulse to be closer to the action. Gerald with a calm hand on my knee, all of a sudden like, Sit tight, sis. Sit tight. Because who the hell is yelling at Don King in a crowded restaurant? In 1954, Don King shot a man in the back and did no jail time. After serving four years for stomping another man to death, King was pardoned. Eddie LeVert and Gerald LeVert are from Cleveland. Don King is from Cleveland. King ran the numbers racket in Cleveland. In addition to being the most famous boxing promoter of all time, King is also a touring entrepreneur who promoted along with Katherine Jackson, the Jackson's 1984 victory tour. King promoted the OJs on the road in the 1980s. Don King promoted the depressing duel in which Mike Tyson bit off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear. King was inducted into the Gaming Hall of Fame in 2008 and has been investigated for ties to organized crime. King, who in the lobby of the restaurant at the Hotel Regal Royal still has Whitney in a hug, is not known for suffering fools. Bobby Brown, before us all, is suffering and foolish. I see in my notes because I was reading the book. When you finished that story, I was like, this story is epic. (laughs) (laughs) I was like... Ooh, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that night, I I still remember that night like it was day before yesterday. It's it's so sad to me too because both Gerald and Whitney are gone. Yeah. Too. So it's just um that was a tough night, and everybody in the restaurant, not all of us, but a good amount of us, either knew each other or knew of each other. So we just all were in there like, is this really happening? 
when I got the book, the chapter that I love the most is, is the Whitney and Aretha chapter. Just I, And like for me as a music fan, anytime I hear Whitney on the radio or her music, I just get sad. Like I just get so, so sad. I'm just like, mm-hmm. damn. And so then reading the book and you you give the lineage in like the Leotine, Dion, and Sissy chapter. And then we mm-hmm. get finally to the Whitney chapter and you touch on the same outcome happening to their daughter, Bobby Christina. And it's just like, damn. It's too much. It's 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 too much. But then also, like we can feel your love for the music and your joy. I guess I want to start with, you know, like what was the research process like in putting all of this together over the five years that you were writing? Like three and a half of those years, I was working full time. I was working at ESPN and that was a job job. So I was not able to really do as much work as I wanted to do on the book. I wasn't able to do as much research or thinking. that That's what it requires for me is time to research and think. That's really ahead of the writing. And so once I was able to, you know, I, I have the support of a great partner in my life. And once I was able to resign from ESPN and write full time for the last year and a half before the book came out, I just, I, uh, people say, damn, people say, what's your toxic trait or what's your superpower? I don't know if it's a toxic trait or a superpower, but I do have the ability to focus. Like I have the ability to make a promise to myself and keep it. I'm not saying every single time, but a good amount of the time I can say to myself, like I did to finish on right. I'm going to have this many words done by this month and this many words done by this month. I'm going to devote this amount of hours to researching this woman. And I would do it. At a certain point, I said, I'm going to get up between 4 and 4.30 in the morning and write at least until 11. That's a luxury and a privilege. Listen, I sure didn't have it when I was young, but I worked my life to have it now. Mm. And I did that. It was not easy. Sometimes I was up and at them. Sometimes my husband would be like, I thought you said you was getting up and working, but what are we doing? Where we at? (laughs) What are we doing? Even got to the point when I was really finishing it and researching so hard. Just I used so many things. I used my old magazines. I went to a lot of libraries and looked at archives. I, I was back in the microfiche. I was all up in the business of Google. I know I'm a searching phenomenon at Google. It's hard to find our stories and it's hard to find our archives. And this is what I was doing. You know, this is what I was doing. I remember one time I went I went to San Francisco just to find a particular thing that I knew that they only had at the San Francisco Public Library. So I did all those kinds of things. It was just such a process. But then at a certain point, somebody had to call time because I would have kept going because I could still be writing it right now and not be half done because there's so many Black women to write about. I noticed that in the epilogue, because like the the formal chapters end with Mariah, but then in the, in the epilogue you touch on Beyonce, because I'm like, that's mm-hmm. obviously the next step <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in the evolution, and you touch a little bit on Rihanna yeah. as well. But you start with Phyllis Wheatley. Why was it that you wanted to start the story with her? Because I think we all know that she's a poet, <clears throat> but wouldn't think of her as a a black woman in pop. To me, Phyllis Wheatley is the seed from which everything has grown. She um, was writing poetry in pre-revolutionary America. 
she was being published against all odds, against odds, like odds, odds. She kidnapped from her, from the mother country. She was six or seven years old, sold into a family in Boston. The trials and tribulations of her life is something that you and I can, like, I, at least let me speak for myself, that I cannot even begin to imagine because even what we do know is horrific. And what we do know is probably 5% of the whole. So but the thing that really made me include her was the fact that she was able to, with the son of the family that owned her, travel back across the Atlantic that she had crossed, you know, coming across in the Middle Passage. She's able to go to London and perform her poems in different places throughout London. Can you imagine that this is like 1774? Yeah. The United States wasn't even the United States. It was still 13 colonies. So it's like, this is what she was working with. And then she came back. And so, like so many Black women performing artists have gone to Europe to get their lives. Tina Turner's there right now. Josephine Baker became, I think she had dual citizenship in France and the United States of America. Ella Fitzgerald, all the jazz greats, men and women, went and toured and made more money in Europe than they could make in the United States and could stay in real hotels and live a life. I'm not saying Europe is this bastion where there's no racism, but it was different than it was in the United States. This was, United States was apartheid. Europe was like, we may not like you, but you can stay at the hotel now. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) It's awful to laugh at, but this is what Black people do to deal with pain. So when I realized that she had gone to London like a touring artist. And then I realized what a Boston girl she was and how Donna Summer was a Boston girl and how Donna Summer had to go to Germany to get her life because the clubs and the recording studios were just not open to her being who she wanted to be. She didn't want to be the Supremes. Donna Summer wanted to be Donna Summer. Mm-hmm. La Donna, okay. LaDonna wanted to be Donna. And so that's why Phyllis is there. And also because she deserves her, not just flowers. She deserves trophies, crowns. I get emotional when I talk about her because she had nobody. She had a husband for a little while. And in some of the research, it says her husband deserted her. And then in another place, it says her husband was always on the road trying to find work because he was a free black man in pre-revolutionary America. And my thing is, why would anybody even start with the fact that he might've deserted her when he was a black, he could have got kidnapped by anybody. He could have got killed. Anything could have happened to him. Why would it just be desertion? And that's why I'm like, no one knows her story because she probably knew that nobody would read it. Mm. What was the most surprising thing that you found in writing this book? It wasn't probably the most surprising. It was it was suspicions confirmed more so. Maybe a surprise that like the same woman was maybe married to two different famous men. And she really is the reason why both of those men are as famous as they are. Like that kind of thing, that kind of detail would surprise me. But the thing that was confirmed for me that I was like mad to find out is like a negative surprise almost is like. So this many people have struggled in their relationships with straight men. This is is really, this is like, (laughs) it's like, you think it's true, 
the anecdotal evidence is strong. But then when you're just going through a list of famous, gifted, talented Black women, singer, songwriters, executives, producers, and if they are dealing with straight men, it's just so often things go so terribly. To just have it confirmed for me, what I know from personal experience about a a good amount of men being uncomfortable with the success, confidence, and high levels of creativity that I try to bring to any situation, that is common. It's common. It's common if you make, it's common at 20 grand a year. It's common at 20 million. If you have ambition, again, whether the ambition is to go from receptionist to EMT or the ambition is to go from freelance writer to editor-in-chief, it is the ambitious spirit. It is a commitment to oneself, which comes off as what we often call a glow. You see how you saw her? Did you see her? Did you see Melanie, Stacy, Billy? Did you see her at the party last night? That girl glowing, ain't she? And then somebody else fills it in. Someone else says, girl, you know she went back to school. Or someone says, girl, you know she's been at that gym every she go to the gym every day. She don't care about her. She at the gym every day. Like it's some kind of commitment to self that comes off as a glow. And so many straight men have a problem with this. Have it makes them itchy and uncomfortable. And so to know that so many, you don't want to act like famous people are so different or they're so the same as you or whatever, but in some ways they are the same. They are the same. They are at least human beings. And I see women going through this. Like when I think of the amount of time that so many of these brilliant women have wasted trying to manage a relationship in which the person loves her, but doesn't like her. Ooh. It, it just is like, how many more songs would we have? How many more well-raised children would we have? How many more of those women who were my grandmother's friends would be that jamming onto you always trying to fall through their crib? That was the s- surprise, if we can call that a surprise. It's interesting in that that's the surprising thing, surprising suspicion that was confirmed. Because Mm -hmm. then I think about when we talk about R&B, especially with Mary, Mm -hmm. that we always say her best music is when she's going through something. Mm -hmm. And I wonder Mm -hmm. what, and this is just me talking out loud, you may not even have an answer. But like, what does that do to the mind to think that, you know, the best music is someone's pain from their real life and we're turning mm-hmm. that into entertainment. But when they give mm-hmm. us joy and they give us glow, they're like, it's just all right. Right. Well, one, I think that we all have so much more faith in bad things happening than in good things happening. So then when you hear somebody singing about What's Mary's song that is the happy song that we all do love, though? When I'm walking by the mirror. Just fine. That is like a good happy song that we love from, from Mary J. Blige. Um, 
But we don't have as much faith in that moment as we do for the moments that were, that broke her heart and broke her spirit. We don't we don't trust happiness enough to feel that you're really singing authentically. It's like is she is ain't nobody that happy. It's a line, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on behind that? What's going on behind the closed door? I'm working on a story right now where I'm talking about how so many Black women write, create and do their work under the shadow of that other shoe dropping. Like we always, we tend to think that like we're doing something good. We're, we're making this thing. We're working this hard. Something bad, something bad is about to happen. That's what we have faith in. And that's why we want that sadness. I like when people push back on it. I remember when Lauren said she wasn't going to be singing all them songs for miseducation. She doesn't like to sing them. Unfortunately, it's her living. You know, it's it's her work. Um, people want to hear that from her, but she doesn't like singing those songs. Those of us that were outside when Lauren was going through her trials and tribulations between the Fugees and going solo and, the you know, the different uh, loves of her life. It's like, at some point, why would she want to sing that? Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, as an artist, how much do you do you owe your fans? I was a particular fan. You remember Arrested Development, that group? And then there was the singer, Dion Ferris. Penny who, with a hole in it. Mm-hmm. Girl. Okay, let me tell you how I... <laughs> me, and, me and Penny with a hole in it is a whole movie. Me and Penny with a hole in it? No. Mm-mm. First of all, the songwriting. A Penny with a hole, hole in, in it. Because I'm Penny hopeless. Pearl. Girl, so I had written a story. This is so long ago. I had written a story about Arrested Development. I was so hoping that she would go solo. She did. I was so hoping that she would have a hit record. She did. She was playing a club in New York City. You know, I was there. I was early. She got up there and she said, she sang. She sang for like an hour. We're getting up on 90 minutes. She haven't sang Penny with a hole in it. Finally, she said, I know you all want me to sing Penny with a hole in it. But I don't want to sing it. Like, it's it's depressing. I'm not in that headspace anymore. It really like brings me down to perform it. Mm. Uh, that being said, I mean, do you all want me to perform it? Audience erupted in applause. Like, yes, we do. Come on now. It's a fine line, man. It's a fine line. So with all that being said, and you talking about that, you know, you've always been writing this book. You could keep writing this book from what you've given us so far. What do you want readers to take away from this offering? I hope they listen to their music a little bit differently. I hope they stream more music from Black women. Come to my page of Spotify. I got all the playlists from my book up there. I should post them more often. I want them to go to more concerts where Black women are playing and not just, you know, definitely let's all be at Renaissance World Tour. Let's do that. Let's put our pennies, let's put our dollars together for that one, right? Let's do that. Um, but let's put our pennies together to the for the club around the corner mm-hmm. where some girl is like singing Whitney covers and Monica covers and hoping that somebody is in there that's going to post about them then someone's going to see that post and then someone's going to say, I want to collaborate with you. And then next thing you know, they making music together and they making their dream come true. Mm-hmm. Let's put our pennies together for that. For the black women artists, like just lift them up. That's what I hope they take away from Shine Bright is just to, to treasure these artists. I'm not saying that every moment is, is 
must be celebratory. There are spaces where we have to interrogate as much as we celebrate. But let's give as much as they're giving to us is so much. Let's give back. Ashe, I like that. So I'm going to do a little speed round, a quick game before I let you go for the morning. Okay, I'm ready. What is your favorite book? Of all time? Yes. I'm acting like I don't know. The Eyes Are Watching God by the Like, I know you have favorites. <laughs> yes, I do. It is. Miss Zornell does it for me. And not every single book, but The Eyes Are Watching God, Miss Janie and Mr. TK. Let me tell you something. Those are my people. It break, the book breaks my heart every time I even, sometimes I don't even like to go up in it because I know what's going to happen at the end and I'm mad. I've had those experiences like where I love the book, but I don't want to read it again because I don't want to get to that one point that's going to make me mad. And then yes. I got to finish it. And I'm just like, you, you know gotta, what? Yeah. I don't have time for you today. It's not <laughs> going to change. Like what happens with Jane and T-Cake is not going to change. Who is your favorite author? Toni Morrison. And specifically for Song of Solomon. Who is your favorite poet? Oh, I like the Harlem Renaissance. I like the Langstons and the County Cullens and all that. Okay. So I'm not going to ask you your favorite song, but you often say it's a perfect record on your podcast. So give me like your top five perfect records. I hate when people are like, what's your Mount Rushmore? <laughs> um, so I'm going to say these are the perfect records that I feel are perfect today and right now. The first one is probably um, Rihanna's Umbrella. Obviously, I'm going to say Midnight Train to Georgia. I'm going to say Luther Vandross's The House is Not a Home. I'm going to say Prince's Purple Rain. And I'm going to say Lauren Hill's Lost Ones. Do you differentiate between poetry, spoken word, and rap? You know, my thought on that is so impolitic that I should not answer it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just say, yes, I do make a difference between all three. Okay. But I will not elaborate. I will refuse to elaborate because also we'll be on here for another hour. (laughs) It's one of my messy questions. Um, Name three things on your bucket list. Well, I really would love to be a great auntie. I'm already a good auntie to my niece and nephew, but I don't want either one of them have no kids right now. And I'm looking at my nephew, but we, my husband and I don't have children. And so... I think I overlove my niece and nephew and they grow now. So I need them to repopulate my situation. Because <laughs> <laughs> my sister's well and done. So that I would love to be that. Um, there's continents yet that I want to see. I have not been to Africa. I've not been to Asia and I've been to Middle East. I've been to South America. I've been, but I haven't been those two places. Um, then I would like to direct a film. Mm-hmm. The last two are within my power. I ain't, I'm not gonna bug my niece and nephew. Yeah, I want to see the film now. We can just mm-hmm. start with a documentary of Shine Bright. This is what I'm saying. And go from there. Yes, <laughs> I will yes, be present yes. and accounted for. Yes, let's. Yes, yes. I'm keeping my mouth shut right now, but one never knows. I'll pay attention. What brings you joy? <laughs> oh, what does a whole bunch of stuff? Um. Quality time with my sister, Raquel. I ride my bike, serving people food that I cooked and had time to cook like with intention and passion. And, you know, I love to cook. 
and talking about, particularly talking about music with my husband. He, mm. We battle it out for who's the biggest music fan, who has the most music knowledge, who has a true, who does or doesn't have a true emotional attachment to music and not just intellectual. But we've been having these same arguments now for decades and it's, it does really bring me joy. Mm. And what brings you peace? You know, honestly, one is a place is Martha's Vineyard. And it and it brings me a lot of peace because there's something about the sun there. And there's something also about the way that you don't care, even if you're on vacation, that it rains. Hmm. There's a certain magic to it. I've been going there since my late 20s. I always tell people I went there when my hotel room was, you know, $55 a night. and i've gone there when the airbnb is you know that times whatever (laughs) so i've done it on all levels and it don't matter what level you're doing it on it's always joy it's always something new to find there i look forward to it any summer that we're able to go we really stay committed to going at least once a summer when we lived in new york we got up there more than once a summer so it's, it's that it really does bring me peace. As soon as I get off that plane, that bus, that ferry, it don't matter how I got there. And whenever I'm there, especially if I go by myself, because sometimes I do, it's I'm always like, why don't I just live here? And so I'm trying to manifest. Okay, because I was going to say that is an option. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is. It is. It is. All right. So my game is called rewriting the classics. I want to do music. So. What's like a perfect album? If you could have recorded it, what would that have been? Luther Vandross, The Night I Fell in Love. People talk about no skips. Luther invented no skips. He didn't even <laughs> he didn't even have quiet moments between his songs on his albums. They were concepts. His voices. I could listen to that. And even, you know, I could pick a Sade album, but sometimes it's always like one song on the Sade album or two songs where you're like, that's cool, but... But on the night I fell in love, you could play it over and over and over and over again. And it's just, um, it also just brings such a, it's such a great time in, in, in Vandross's life, great time in my life. You know what I mean? He was at the height of his powers. So you kind of answered the next question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Was mm-hmm. like one classic album where it's just like one or two songs. It's just like, mm, it's not quite what it could have been. I'll be honest with you. I mean, that's every album. That's every album, except in rare cases. Like, and I also don't want people to feel the pressure, artists to feel the pressure of my every song has to be perfect to everyone. It's like the two songs that I think are whack is one of those songs somebody got married to, and it's the most special song in the world to them. So it's like, I I like I can't. Like I and I also I just don't feel the artists have to be perfect. That's why the 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 Mount Rushmore question always irritates me. I'm like, I don't, I'm not putting nobody on that. I'm not doing it. Like, and plus mine will change every month. Like <laughs> I just, y'all it, like being a pop star, being a hip hop star, being a rock star, being a reggae star, these things is like, these people are human. So it's something I like to remind people. I'm not saying that we should hold them on a pedestal. no, or and we should celebrate them for the impact that they have on culture. But they are human. But you you know I have things to do. It's Grammy week. Okay, I'm finishing up. <laughs> <laughs> My final question for you today. 
Okay. When you're dead and gone and among the ancestors, what do you want someone to write about the legacy of words and work that you left behind? Well, if I'm up there among the ancestors, and I do anticipate being up there, um, (laughs) I feel that they should just let me edit it. (laughs) Like, just, I'll, I'll come to you in your dreams, right? If you write it. And I'll just come to you in your dreams. And I'll just give a few suggestions for cuts, more precise adjectives. Probably just a few little facts that you left out. Stronger verbs. A little stronger verbs. You know what I'm saying? No need for adverbs, just stronger verbs. And, and, you know, just call upon me in your dreams. And I will come to you if you are writing about me when I'm amongst the ancestors. I anticipate living a very active life up there because everybody needs an editor. So that's my (laughs) joke answer. My real answer is I just hope they say, just like everybody hopes. That whoever in charge up there say job well done. That's it. Well done. Thank mm-hmm. you, Danielle. Big thank you to Danielle Smith for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Danielle's book, Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women in pop. It's out now, today, in paperback from Rocklit. And if you're not following Danielle, Check her out on the socials. She's at Danamo on Instagram and Twitter. And Danamo is D-A-N-A-M-O. That's Instagram and Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Danielle about what it means that so many songs that we love are steeped in pain. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week when our guest will be Destiny O. Birdsong, author of Nobody's Magic. Sometimes you bake a cake and you know it slaps, right? Like my mom is a... (laughs) My mom is is a good example of this. She's a good cook in general, but like... She knows what her signature dishes are. And I think writing Suzette for me, I was like, this is me. I could feel it. I could hear it. I I had experienced it. And I just knew that, like, it was strong because of that. I mean, the whole book is good, if I do say so myself. It is. It is. It's (laughs) my opinion. (laughs) That's next week on Black and Published. I'll talk to you then. Peace. (laughs)